and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle's programme all about the built environment. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... I think this is what small cities can offer. They can offer a certain focus that perhaps in the noise of a big metropolis gets lost. We discuss all cities, great and small, today as we explore Monocle's recent Small Cities Index from the latest edition of our annual The Forecast. Plus, we visit a relatively small Canadian centre on the shores of Lake Ontario with a transformative project planned. And we assess some new possible uses for a soon-to-be-vacant tower in London's Canary Wharf. That's all ahead in the next 30 minutes here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. Monocle's annual look ahead, The Forecast, is on newsstands now. And inside, we have presented our fifth small cities index, exploring centres with fewer inhabitants, but plenty still to give in terms of their urban offerings. To discuss the big winners and find out what got them to the top, I'm joined now by the editor of this year's index, Monocle's design editor, Nick Manise. Nick, why do we like small cities? I mean, Andrew, we like small cities for a host of different reasons. And it is funny, it's, it has evolved over the last couple of years. I've, I've now been running it for two. I think this is our fifth edition. But if we actually compare 2023 to 2024, 2023 was really about self-sufficiency and cities that you could go to and if the world did you know, implode, which it felt like it was a little bit at the time, you would have access to all the resources you need. And we're talking about, you know, close proximity to farm and fresh produce, but also proximity to an airport where you could escape if you need to, connectivity to other cities, a fast internet connection. In in 2023, those felt like things that were essential. In 2024, I I think our perspective maybe has become less about self-reliance or or resiliency. Not to say that that's not important, but I think the focus has shifted much more to lifestyle. So what we've looked at in 2024 in this latest iteration of of the index is places where you might want to set up to nurture a particular skill set. And I think this is, or a particular way of life, and I think this is what small cities can offer. They can offer a certain focus that perhaps in the noise of a big metropolis gets lost. If we can start to comb through some of them, but if we start with Naha, which we, it is a loose ranking, but we started with Naha in Japan just because we felt that as we head into into winter and the gloomier months in the Northern Hemisphere, the appetite or the desire to go and and live an island life might be there. And, and, And this was a place we felt really strongly, and considering a host of options across the globe, we felt really strongly would be a place to go set up if you wanted to be on an island and yet not far from other metropolises. Well, someone we, I think, know quite well, Mr Brule, ended up going to Naha in recent days and I think was blown away by the place. The arrivals from big cities who have gone there to set up stores, to make restaurants, the connection with craft and food production there make it an incredibly special place. I want to ask you what makes in population numbers a small city because I did have to kind of stop you a few times because you were trying to get a few in there that I, I think were quite big cities. So, so how, cause It's funny, when you think about often the city you think of as very small, you then realise it has this wide metropolitan area that kind of cranks out to a million people without you realising. So what is a small city for Nick Moniz? So we've capped it at 350,000, which is personally a little bit too small for me. I mean, I'm from a city of 2 million and that felt tiny, Perth on, on the west coast of Australia. But you're right in saying that often when we think of a city, we think of it as, you know, I guess the county or the local government boundary, however we mark these areas up on a map. But we've sort of gone for 350,000 as the metropolitan area. And, and that in itself presents a challenge, particularly with so often we see cities 
cities sprawling into their neighbouring cities and Twin Cities just become a, an enormous metropolis. But we really capped it at 350,000. And there were some challenges in this. I mean, Brazil, we visited Petropolis as part of the index. And, you know, we were talking to Fernando, our culture correspondent, our senior culture correspondent here, who is Brazilian, and trying to, I guess, find a Brazilian city or a Latin American city that fit that brief was particularly challenging because so often it's, you know, even if you look at Sao Paulo or Rio de Janeiro, there are, I guess, separate cities around it, but really lots of them are just an extension of the metropolitan area and the sprawl. So finding a a good city that stands on its own was particularly challenging in that instance. Now, I know you like to stay friends with the High Commissioner here in London, but being a good Aussie, you, you snuck in Newcastle, Australia. I don't know anything about Newcastle, Australia. Sorry, listeners in Newcastle, Australia. Tell me about Newcastle, Australia. Why is it so good? I mean, it, it's a brilliant city for several reasons. It fits the 350,000 <laughs> 50, uh, population uh, cap, which is essential. But I actually, I mean, obviously, I'm always going to try and work Australia in there. But, you know, I ran through a, a host of different candidates for this city. I looked at, for an Australian city that might fit the bill, I looked at Wollongong, which is an hour or two south of Sydney, whereas Newcastle's an hour or two north. Wollongong felt like really a suburb, an extension of Sydney. It didn't feel like it had its own defined cultural life. We've got editors and reporters on the ground there and talking to them about their perceptions of the cities and how they, whether they feel like their own standalone thing was a big factor in this. So Newcastle has its own strong and established culture scene. It's got its own furniture and and maker industry. There are architects there that are well established and not just an extension of, of the Sydney practices. And I think that was really, really distinct. Add to that, the city itself, you've got quick access to beaches, amazing coffee, as you would expect in Australia, and really a a business-friendly environment as well. And I think that's also something that's important as well. We're looking at these in terms of lifestyle factors, but coming into that is all of these cities are assessed on whether their local economies are are friendly to business. We make note of that. We're looking at whether it's a place you could easily go and, and set up shop, not just is it pretty and is it somewhere where I'd like to lay on the beach. Now, you're also a design architecture editor, and you've got in here Eindhoven, which is famous for its design school. But for if you were going to be asked to go and live in one of these small cities as a, a design aficionado, where might you go? This was a fascinating one, and I think I probably wouldn't have picked this initially setting out, but Santander, Spain, really sort of put itself on my radar in terms of not only the the brilliant architects that are commissioned there. I mean, there's works by Renzo Piano and David Chipperfield in the city itself, but actually more works coming online from David Chipperfield. And it's the fact that you've got these big architects practicing there that appeals to me. In terms of if you're a designer or you're an architect, these huge studios are always looking to partner with a local firm. So this could be a great chance to potentially get on the radar of these big names. So I think not only for its established architecture and its established design scene, but also for potential to, I guess, further, I think Santander really puts itself forward as a strong candidate for design. And you should pick up a copy of the forecast because the index is in there. And I must say that the pictures of Santander make it look particularly appealing. We had Girona last year and now we have Santander. I could happily go and spend a little bit of time in either of them. Unfortunately, we, we can't get your beloved Mallorca or Parma rather on too there. It's big. slightly too, too big. big. But there's certainly some other Spanish candidates for you that maybe, you know, if you need a little break from Parma, you can jet off there for the weekend. Monocle's design editor, Nick Manise. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. The Canadian city of Hamilton doesn't quite meet our small cities metric with a population nearing 600,000, but competes for residents, along with the southwest corner of Lake Ontario, with the country's most populous city of Toronto. 
Hamilton is known for its industrial history, and it's in this city where Slate Asset Management, the global property investment firm, is planning to create a new industrial hub from a previously underutilised port. Well, I'm now joined by Brandon Donnelly from Slate Asset Management. Brandon is responsible for the development business and oversees adaptive reuse and urban infill projects that have also an eye on their wider community impact. Brandon, thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell us more, first of all, about this project in Hamilton, Steelport, that you're currently working on? This is an 800-acre waterfront site that we purchased last year from Stelco, a steel company, and it's on the waterfront in Hamilton, which is about 45 minutes west of Toronto in the Greater Golden Horseshoe. As far as I'm aware, it's the largest private investment that has happened in the city of Hamilton. And our vision is really to create a new manufacturing and logistics campus on the waterfront. And so our full build-out plan includes up to 12 million square feet of new industrial space, which is obviously something that is in very high demand these days. But I think the other unique piece about the project is there's 3,400 meters of shoreline associated with this site. And so as part of the development, we're also opening up the site for the first time to the public. So we're creating an extensive trail network, waterfront promenade, a loop through the middle of the site. And so, you know, even though we're redeveloping it and creating new industrial space, we're also opening it up and making it publicly accessible for the first time, which we think is an important part of the project. I know that one of the big focuses is job creation, and this is part of the ambition of the project. Is this new job creation, or do you think this is jobs relocating from more expensive neighbourhoods in Toronto, for example, coming to Hamilton? No, we think this is new job creation. And when we build out the full 12 million square feet, we think this can create up to 23,000 jobs, up to nearly 4 billion of economic activity for Ontario. I mean, this is new space, and there's a shortage of industrial space in the greater Toronto and Hamilton area. And so there's a lot of latent demand that we think will be satisfying on this site. And, you know, one of the unique things about this site is really how accessible it is. It's really a multimodal site. There's highway access, there's on-site rail, which is very, very unique, and then direct access to the Great Lakes. So the St. Lawrence Seaway connectivity as well, too. So it's a very unique site. It's a very connected site. And so we think this is new jobs that we're going to be creating opportunities for. When you redevelop something like a a steel plant, many of the industrial buildings are are fascinating, but often are difficult to easily refurbish or to turn into usages for lighter industrial usages. How much reuse, how much rebuild is going to take place? That is something that we're looking at very carefully. We think there is an opportunity to preserve some of the existing buildings. However, one of the things that we're doing on a site is for buildings that are obsolete or that we feel need to be demolished, we're going to be recycling the existing steel that's in those buildings. So, you know, even in cases where we can't reuse those buildings, we think there's a good sustainability story there and that we're doing the responsible thing. Tell me also, when you build this neighbourhood, how will you engender some sense of community there, though, as well, that it feels like a a vibrant place to go and work? Because as you've seen in many of the, the benchmarks you'll have looked at around the world, it's often interesting how these projects get built, but they do feel a bit separate. They don't have a, a sense of you wanting to linger and stay. And especially at a time when we're still seeing the need to encourage people to want to go back to work environments. How do you make it feel like a place that is desirable to be during the day? I think a lot of that comes down to design and how we design those public spaces. So I think it's creating enjoyable, beautiful public spaces where people want to linger and actually explore. We're also looking at preserving 
components of the existing buildings, not just to reuse them, but also to create that history and to speak to the history of the site. And so there's an extensive pipe network that runs along this site, which is referred to as the pipe gallery. And, you know, we're looking at ways that we can preserve that just to, you know, again, speak to the history of the site. And we think that, you know, these types of design elements really enhance a place. There's environmental benefits to preserving things, but there's also cultural benefits to doing that. And then, you know, the other component to this is really the programming. So there's the design, but there's also uses and programming that we can incorporate into the site. So there will be retail and there will be other places for people to go, even if we don't have residential. So, you know, I think those two things combined will create a really interesting node and destinations for people to come and visit. And Brandon, just tell me, for you, you're working in a big organization, a powerful organization. What do you find is the, the exciting motivator for you? Is it being a little bit altruistic? Is it trying to make community? Is it having a legacy for your company? What drives you on? Because I'm always fascinated because people like yourself, you have such a potential impact on place and placemaking and, and what people will live with for generations to come. It must feel both exciting and a responsibility even when there's a demand, of course, to turn a profit at the end of the day. I think that's a good way of describing it. It's very exciting, but it's also a tremendous responsibility. I think that's something that we take very seriously at our company. And that's why we think of ourselves as city builders. And we want to think beyond our individual projects and think about the impact that we're having, but also the opportunities where we can use a project to affect positive change in an area. And it's a kind of a catalyst to be able to do more and think beyond our projects. And myself personally, my, you know, my background is in architecture. I, I went to school for seven years only to become a real estate developer. But you know, that's part of my DNA and my core. And I think you know, it's a big part of what we try to do at Slate is incorporate good design and use development as an opportunity for that. So again, I think we take that responsibility very seriously. I had a cheeky look at your CV before we came on air, and I saw that you also did fine art history. So a sense of beauty of place and and not just functionality, I guess, is important to you as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's funny. I once had a community meeting, and after I finished, somebody came up to me, and he asked me about my background, and I told him I, I studied fine art history. He said, well, that's the most important thing that you've studied. I'm glad to hear that. You know, fine art history is a wonderful way of understanding history because art is always produced by a particular environment and milieu at the time. And so, you know, that's something, again, that we also incorporate in a lot of our projects is an art component. Art, architecture, design, all of these things are fundamental to our projects. Hearing you talk now, it's fascinating hearing you talk. What you can bring to the project is you know, that this notion of serendipity and beauty is like, of course, we want quantifiable things and we need these measures and, and metrics when we're going to a city authority to ask for planning permission. But the things that in the end bind people to place are often the things that don't appear on a spreadsheet. It's the things you're talking about, the, the additionals, the extras, the things that make a connection to a place. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's the spreadsheet, there's the science to it. But a lot of what we do is art and creating places that people want to linger and enjoy and spend their time in. My thanks there to Brandon Donnelly from Slate Asset Management. Staying on the theme of adaptive reuse to end this week's show, we head to Canary Wharf in London, where HSBC Bank will soon vacate its world headquarters, prompting the question of what do we do next with its empty building? David Weatherhead, design principal at Global Architecture Practice, HOK, has recently undertaken a design study showing that the building is adaptable for a range of uses, including multi-generational living, hotels, laboratories, and even community makerspaces. 
David joined Monocle's Tom Edwards in studio recently, and Tom began by asking about the rising issue of what to do with empty office towers. I think the first thing to say is our cities always evolve, and with them, our cherished buildings do too. And I think one of the things that we've realised in the the last few years is that's been accelerated, and the problem is, to some degree, understood. But I think the future is always unknown. So I think the best thing that we can do as architects is to try and work out whether there's something that we can put in place that will allow buildings or uses to be more versatile. Were you always an architect that was more interested in that idea that we need to build in or design in greater flexibility? Now it's a bit of a mainstream narrative. Was that always something that you were a bit more interested in, would you say? My passion for multi-use buildings is born through the interest of what happens when you put different uses that may be unexpectedly placed together what benefits that could arise from a social side. And to do that, you need flexible buildings because different uses have different demands on buildings and they have a lot of different protocols that you have to go through. So having that inbuilt into buildings generally means that you go down a certain direction, which could be seen as more costly. But in the long term, we know that would play out. But having that upfront capital cost is somewhat of a deterrent for a lot of people who see the market as a single use in terms of their financial returns. Let's talk about Canary Wharf. Super interesting. Anyone who knows London Skyline at all will know that HSBC building specifically, they're moving to a much smaller building in the city later this decade, four or five years out. Lots of discussion about it. Tell me about how this kind of research piece, this report that you've put together, how did that get started? Well, our research piece didn't start at the Canary Wharf area. And in fact, we've designed many buildings in Canary Wharf. But a missing part of our research was a large central core design study. And it's because they've generally been the hardest to challenge. So it's quite easy, we're sat in a studio, which has been a retrofit, to think about retrofit as an obvious thing that a lot of buildings can take for certain uses. But the larger and more prominent buildings that are designed specifically for banks tend to exclude thinking about other uses going in them from an ergonomic point of view. So it's a timely challenge for us that we think as architects, that's part of our duty, is to think of things and think of the opportunities that could arise through just having a look. So it was something that we thought, well, what if? What could go into this building feasibly? Because we'd like to think there's three reasons why buildings could be adapted and the challenges that would be associated. The one is the societal challenge. Do we feel comfortable with certain uses adjacent to each other? The second is a technical challenge. Can it be done? And the third is it's a financial challenge. Is it viable to do it? So from the first two points, we feel that we're quite well equipped to challenge and show opportunities that building can present. So that was our starting point. And built with that is understand that we designed the Barclays World Headquarters on the adjacent site. And also a hotel, the Marriott Hotel in West India Quay. We've also got planning for the tallest residential building in Canary Wharf. And we've designed the largest hostel in Tower Hamlet. So we thought, because we do all these different building types, it's a really interesting way to start saying, with our diverse background of knowing different uses, what could go into this building? And what could the future hold? And what message could this building portray apart from just the Hong Kong, Shanghai banking company? You know, So that's, that was a challenge to us. And we thought, let's see what would happen. And our findings were, surprisingly, that you can put a lot of things into this building really nicely. Well, let's talk a bit more about that. This wasn't commissioned by the building's owners. This is all information that's in the public domain, correct, if that's correct. correct. Before we talk about the findings, just tell me very quickly about the process. I mean, where do you start? Because I guess, you, in a sense, you've got a blank canvas. You've got a lot of expertise. But what does the actual process of putting that initial research together look like? What we make sure we do is we do a deep dive in knowing about the existing building. 
what we don't want to do is mislead or misinform through a lack of understanding of what's possible. So that requires us to do a bit of digging. So A Canada Square, the HSBC building, there's not much in the public domain on that building, but Arup were the engineers and they have an online journal which portrays when the building was built, what it was built of, the dimensions and things. So we wanted to know what it was made of, the size of it, the floor-to-floor heights, all that sort of stuff. So we could then look at that as a challenge and say, well, is this something that we know enough about to offer some reasonable and safe assumptions of what we can then start putting into the building? So that's our starting point. The others, we're experts in tall buildings and complicated buildings. So we know the challenges, for instance, of putting laboratories in buildings. We're doing a lot of studies at the moment to do that. So we know the challenges about dynamic performance, for instance, of floor plates and what it means to the structure of the building. And we also design lots of other building types which tell us, you know, is that feasible or suitable? So that's our starting point. And the second is looking at the needs of the area. So that's just an example of a building. And we know, for instance, in Tower Hamlets, like most of the boroughs in in London, there's a quality housing shortage. And there's also with the North Quay development investment from Canary Wharf into research. So we know certain things are kind of needs and certain things are desires. So we look at the in-between and we kind of look at, well, what if scenario? So what if we added a bit of this and a bit of this? That's how we would normally start. And so that gives us the template to know how the building could be easily used. I'll give an example for that building. It's a central core and what we call the, the window to core ratio isn't as big as what we had originally thought. So it's not deep plan. That's really interesting because on the outside you wouldn't know that. But that means you can get a lot more uses than what you'd expect in that, including residential, which most uses are dictated by things like daylight fall off. So for instance, a residential, we would generally not plan deeper than eight metres. The HSBC building is about 10 metres to 11 metres from the curtain walling to the core. So you know it's in the realms of it feasible. And so that's kind of our understanding. We start at kind of the, is it feasible? And then we start going into the deep dive of the what ifs. And then we look at the really interesting bits of, well, what happens in the in-betweens and and how could this evolve over time? And that's really interesting. And I guess a lot of that interesting sort of area depends a lot on collective sort of social psychology. Because if you look in, for example, the Far East, in, say, Tokyo, where they have this kind of issue, much more willingness to be a little bit more experimental in terms of usage thinking of say academic institutions taking over a big building and there's a reticence seemingly about engaging with that kind of idea do you agree with that and if so how helpful is it then to have some really trenchant research that can actually give people some numbers as well as just making the case emotionally to have a fundamentally multi-use building requires us to challenge the current building codes which tend to be put together by building type. So what we find is the challenge is sometimes not that it's not possible to put building use in, but the planning use and also the building regulations aren't set up really to look at multi-use buildings. They're set up to kind of almost treat buildings as individual uses. And so that's a challenge. But we have recently, with the introduction of the Pending Building Act for residential with the second staircase, suddenly what we're seeing is within, for instance, residential buildings, that the core is very similar, take away the toilets, from an office core for the first time. So the challenge isn't, oh, well, this is unsuitable because the core's too different. Now it starts asking a question, well, is it the floor-to-floor height? So why is there a apprehension? I think it's very convenient to have a single tenant in a big building, right? That's probably the easiest thing and the nicest thing to get from a development point of view. When you start subdividing that, I think the worry is 
is it getting too messy and too difficult to have subtenants and smaller tenants? The irony is most office buildings we see are going that way anyway in terms of multi-tenanting and small tenanting. So I think that's the challenge is you'd love to get a player in to be able to say, oh, you could come into our building, but what's the long-term implications for the building? Does it have to be adapted? And how can that adaption happen if other uses are in the building? And I think that's, that's some of the challenges, part of that technical thing that we can overcome. But I think that's one of the reasons why it doesn't happen so often in the UK. Just on cost, a big narrative that we at Monocle keep hearing is that there's an assumption almost that refurb is more cost effective than starting afresh, or it should be if it's done correctly. Tell us a little bit about the cost implications. Can you generalise and say a responsible refurbishment of a building like this would be more cost effective than taking it apart and building it again? I know on a supersized building that's maybe a bit tricky, but generally speaking, what is the cost of refurb repurposing? Some doubters say almost it's always prohibitively expensive. Where, Where does the truth lie? I think the truth today is we shouldn't be demolishing our buildings. That's something which the planning system has very much got to grips with. We need to demonstrate, if a building is to be demolished, a fundamental case of why. So it's not a question of, is it affordable? The question is, do you do it or do you not do it? And so the affordability, I don't think anyone would be worried about this if it was a really cost-effective way to do it. People would be doing much more. The problem is it's not cost-effective. It's not something that's seen as a cheap way to do something. When upgrading a building, it's incredibly expensive to think about things like facade replacement and trying to think about, well, what are you keeping? And what we really want to keep is most of the carbon-intensive things, you know, the concretes and the steels and things like that. But we also need to keep an eye on things like our long-term energy use. So do we add a better performing facade on the long term to save more carbon of an operational side? That's something we've got to put into one side. But there is always what we try to do with any building is look at an approach, which is what is the minimum amount that is needed to keep this building going? Is our first point of call. The second is how much of the building could we keep, but it's like a deep retrofit. And then the third option is what would a new build look like? And what we see in the figures that we're getting back at the moment is the difference between the capital cost of the retrofit and the new build is very similar. It's not necessarily a cost saving. Sometimes it means it's less disruptive, which is a really great planning story. You don't want to disrupt your neighbours unnecessarily by demolishing. But the devil's in the detail and every building's different. So there's not a kind of a one size fits all. David, let's come back to Canary Wharf. And I know it's something that our editor, Andrew Tuck, has often spoken about, which is this feeling still that it struggles with having this kind of neighbourhood vibe. We talk about, oh, potential for more residential, but it still is the case that, you know, on the weekend in particular, well, actually increasingly on Mondays and Fridays now, it doesn't feel like a London neighbourhood in some respects. You're nodding. I don't know if you would dispute it. But one of the challenges, I guess, if you're looking at this as you are analytically, you've got to have this deep understanding about much longer term placemaking, neighbourhood building, which we're fascinated by at Monocle. But that is not easy to calibrate, let alone to know what's going to happen. So taking a Candace Square as an example, what would you like to see or what does the research suggest we should consider to best ensure not just that that building is efficacious for as long as possible, but that the wider neighbourhood, Canary Wharf, develops in a way that best works for London and Londoners. I think it's fair to say the Canary Wharf was designed on a grid system, which is more like an American approach to a new city. And it was designed for a couple of different purposes, but one was at that time where we could build tall buildings in our cities. 
because of its success, I think what's happened is a lot of corporations have gone to Canary Wharf and they've not necessarily allowed the ground floor to be as active or as welcome as maybe some parts of our cities are, which are based upon a kind of an activation of the public realm. Having said that, Canary Wharf has fantastic public realm. It's got fantastic attributes that it's now exploring and it's an exciting place to visit. I just think the opportunities are to really start looking at the building stock that's there and opening them up and activating them to different types of users will break down this barrier between where corporate land stops and where public land starts. And I think with that could come an exciting addressing of different uses from not just new ways of bringing people into their buildings, but also trying to hit big targets of things like or we want to address things like makerspaces through the encouragement or the curation of our creative industry? Are we thinking about how we display some of our products that we make to kind of really reinforce the message that what we're trying to do is create a local kind of infrastructure here? And then also bring that through, and there's been some recent examples at Canary Wharf where you've got local artists and really celebrate that. And we also got, remember, the connectivity in Canary Wharf is fantastic. And it's also got the waterway. So in many ways, it's got all of the attributes to be an amazing place for the long term. And I think it's just at this point at the time where it's trying to work out what its identity is. And we as architects just are super excited to see what that potential could be. And I think we all believe in it. And it's just now it's turn to kind of crank up the dial. David Weatherhead there in conversation with Tom Edwards. And that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to ensure that you don't miss out on any new episodes. The Urbanist is produced by Carlotta Rebello and David Stevens, and David also edits the show. And to play you out this week, here's Shintaro Sakamoto with Small But Enough. Thank you for listening, city lovers. Oi, shatsu no hadan.